Buonasera, mi spiace molto che eh, questa sera la pioggia sia d'ostacolo in maniera, devo dire, ferale ehm, per una ragione molto semplice, insomma, è chiaro che l'oste parla bene del suo vino, però questa sera con un buon grado di sicurezza posso dirvi che ascolterete una conferenza bellissima. E posso dirvi che ascolterete una conferenza bellissima perché conosciamo un poco di Dremekloski e sappiamo bene quali sono le, le questioni delle quali si occupa, soprattutto uh, in anni uh, recenti. Alcuni di voi oggi avranno letto l'intervista che Didre ha rilasciato alla Repubblica oppure quella che ha rilasciato al Foglio e avranno in qualche maniera diciamo così, fatto l'esperienza di qualche cosa di molto raro ma molto prezioso in un momento come questo cioè l'inserimento anche di questioni di attualità di problemi eh, circostanziati in una prospettiva storica Didre è economista e storica dell'economia assieme adesso è eh, emerita ma fino a qualche mese fa era professore di economia, storia, inglese e comunicazione eh, alla University of Illinois of Chicago ed ha un grande eh, percorso accademico, un percorso accademico che comincia a Harvard ma nessuno è perfetto eh, e poi invece da Harvard si sposta sul lago Michigan, all'Università di Chicago, dove diventa assistant professor nel 1968. Da allora ha sviluppato una produzione scientifica veramente tra le più rilevanti, tra gli studiosi contemporanei. 16 libri che diventeranno 17 ad aprile, con il terzo libro di questa uh, importante e maestosa trilogia e oltre 400 articoli scientifici ma è un caso il suo uno dei pochissimi di solito gli studiosi si dividono un po' in due categorie, quelli che scrivono su tanti temi o quelli che scrivono in profondità di un singolo tema no? uh, profondità e varietà di argomenti tipicamente non vanno assieme Beh, il caso di Didre è decisamente diverso, ci sono pochissimi studiosi che vantano un ventaglio di interessi di ricerca così vasto, anche se molto coerente la costruzione chiara, e nello stesso tempo una profondità di analisi di questo tipo. È, uno dei maggiori, è una delle maggiori storiche, uno dei maggiori storici dell'economia dell'Inghilterra vittoriana, i suoi primi lavori sono legate a quel periodo, è stata co-curatrice di una importantissima, ancora oggi citatissima, eh, antologia sull'economia inglese dal 1700 ad oggi, cioè i lavori di storia economica abbracciano questioni cruciali di cosa avviene effettivamente nell'economia inglese dopo l'abolizione delle Corlò, c'è stato e quanto ha pesato effettivamente il declino economico britannico una questione cruciale per la storia del pensiero economico e anche per la storia dell'economia, cioè come funzionavano davvero gli open field, il eh, contadino prudente e ehm, 
di fede, questo titolo di un libro che speriamo negli anni futuri presto si aggiungerà alla sua bibliografia. E poi a un certo punto comincia a interessarsi, diciamo così, dello statuto ontologico dell'economia e del suo rapporto con altre scienze sociali. Esce negli anni Ottanta un libro importantissimo, tradotto questo anche in italiano, La retorica dell'economia, pubblicato da Inaudi con prefazione di un economista molto diverso, insomma come approccio metodologico, ma sicuramente importante, eh, come Augusto Graziani. Tutta questa sua ricerca sulla ermeneutica dell'economia e anche, diciamo così, sull'eccesso di eh, costruttivismo da parte degli economisti poi riverbera anche eh, in alcuni libri molto belli e molto preziosi e divertenti, diciamo la verità, sin dal titolo. Uno più divertente si chiama If You Are So Smart ma se veramente gli economisti sono così intelligenti perché non sono diventati anche tanto ricchi no? con, le loro, um, con le loro previsioni e quindi questi due lavori sulle parole dell'economia sull'economia come conversazione sulla storia economica a un certo punto procedono paralleli per, per un certo periodo e poi si incontrano e si incontrano a cominciare dalla metà degli anni 90 in un articolo eh, molto importante, poi in un libretto che è quello che trovate anche in traduzione italiana eh, dell'Istituto Bruno Leoni e infine in questa trilogia in uscita per l'Università di Chicago, il primo era Bourgeois Virtues, il secondo è Bourgeois Dignity e il terzo è Bourgeois Equality, quindi la, le virtù borghesi, la dignità borghese, l'eguaglianza borghese. Ciò che cogliete subito è che l'aggettivo borghese è messo in relazione sin dal titolo con sostantivi che molto raramente vi sono avvicinati. No? Virtù, dignità, um, eguaglianza, cioè andando in qualche maniera a comprendere in modo eh, molto raffinato e nuovo l'effettivo contributo sotto il piano culturale di quella che David Hume e Smith chiamano società commerciale e che invece possiamo chiamare società borghese appunto eh, collocandola eh, storicamente con la, con la nascita di una classe di persone che non, era, non si vergognavano ecco, di essere ehm, di trarre eh, primariamente la propria ragione di vita dal mondo degli affari tutto è un lavoro sulla rivalutazione del commercio, dell'attività economica, proprio sotto il profilo culturale, sotto il profilo dei valori di una società. Noi questa sera abbiamo chiesto di aiutarci ad incominciare nella maniera migliore possibile, con l'eccezione eh, del clima purtroppo, un ciclo di incontri e di conferenze nel quale crediamo molto, che si chiama l'Altro Expo. Non, abbiamo, non vogliamo fare una polemica rispetto all'Expo come luogo, eh, come parco divertimenti, come attrazione utile per la nostra città e speriamo vada e continui ad andare nel migliore dei modi. Ma vogliamo invece cominciare un, un dialogo, una critica rispetto a quella che è stata un po' l'ideologia no? di, di questa manifestazione della Carta di Milano, l'idea che in qualche maniera la sostenibilità anche agricola e alimentare del nostro pianeta sottenda la necessità di una revisione eh, di quello che chiamiamo con una parola che a dire non piace ma è per capirci prima della conferenza capitalismo 
quindi vogliamo invece cominciare un percorso che andrà avanti fino al mese di febbraio o di marzo per ragionare su come sono l'innovazione, l'imprenditorialità, lo scambio, al contrario, le leve fondamentali per assicurare quel grande obiettivo nel quale tutti noi speriamo, cioè il fatto di poter continuare a sfamare un numero crescente di bocche eh, su questa terra, che poi è la grande cosa che alla fine 200 anni di capitalismo ci hanno dato, no? salari reali crescenti e un numero crescente di persone che le hanno percepite. È per questa ragione che la conferenza di questa sera io mi taccio e eh, eh, mi preparo veramente a gustarmela, si intitola Just a Great Free Lunch, solamente un grande eh, pasto gratis il market tested betterment che è un modo migliore per dire capitalismo e eh, vi spiegherà perché 1800-2015 cioè la strada che abbiamo fatto in sistemi relativamente liberali e relativamente di mercato per cui vi chiedo veramente un grande applauso per il nostro ospite di questa sera Grazie. Um, I understand about 10% of Italian. Um, I love Italian, but I'm terrible at languages and have never really come to grasp Italian. But I love your language and I love hearing myself praised in your language. <laughs> Sempre caro mi fu questo amicole, e questo siete, che da tante parti, eccetera, eccetera. <laughs> so I, 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 that's my proof that I love the Italian language. Leopardi is my hero. I've been to the very place. I've been to Recanati. I've been to the Siepe. I, so just, that's just to establish that I, <laughs> love Italy. I don't love Italian agricultural policy. <laughs> I don't love the common market agricultural policy. I don't love a lot of the food policies that the world has, has followed. Food, of course, is special. We feel it is. In Japan, there are rice fields inside Tokyo, <laughs> some of the most valuable urban land in the world, nonetheless, is reserved to grow rice because rice is sacred in Japanese culture. And indeed, in my own country, in the United States, the small farmer, the yeoman farmer, to use an English phrase, the family farm, the family farm is sacred, not profane. It's holy. And this mix of self-interest and sacredness, the sacred and the profane, is the source of some of our problems with 
food uh, policy. Now, of course, the main story about food in the last two centuries is that once we didn't have enough of it. Look around this room. I look, I, see, I don't see any descendants of the crowned heads of Europe. I don't see any Habsburg chins. I, I, I suppose that most of the people in this room descend from very poor um, people. I think of Carlo, Carlo Levy's great book about two Italian villages in the south in the late 1930s. And these were, the modern jargon is food insecure, right? If the crop failed, they were at least hungry and sometimes starved, so they came to the United States, they came to Argentina. <coughs> so that was our past. And our, our present in, the, in, in food is abundance. There, there you, 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 you'll hear statements to the contrary. You'll see here that uh, there are still people in the United States who go to bed hungry. I don't think this makes a lot of sense. There's been an improvement in the last 40 years in food security again in the, the United States. And in the longer perspective, what's remarkable about the modern world What's very special is what I call the great enrichment. You start in Italy in 1800, average income in modern terms, average income for each person is $3 a day in modern prices. Imagine trying to live a Milano three dollars, well, you'd have to translate them into, into euros first, but three dollars a day. That's not just imaginary. It's not, I'm not, this isn't just some um, impossible thing because there are many people in the world who still live on the equivalent of two or three dollars a day. But that's our past. My Irish ancestors, $3 a day. Now, in Italy, $80, $90 a day. The United States, filled with former Italians, <laughs> it's $130 a day. A great Italian-American died last Tuesday, Yogi Berra, great baseball player and social philosopher. Anyway, $80 a day is a tremendous improvement over $3 a day. $130 is even, even better. It makes for lots of fat people 
because we once were peasants and prosperity in a peasant society is shown by being a little low, having too much of this. I eat pistachio ice cream in, in, in Italy and I gain weight. I must stop it. And what's odd about this, so here, here's, the, here, here, here's the picture, right? The draw picture. Thousands of years, tens of thousands of years of $3 a day, $3 a day. Uh, here, I'll, I'll make zero up here so you can all see it. $3 a day, $3 a day. And then around 1800, starting in northwestern Europe, and very soon coming to um, uh, Austria and Italy and so forth, it goes like this. There's this enormous increase by 3,000%, not by 100% or 200%, which is good. I'm glad if your income per head doubles or, or triples, good. That's, that's a nice start. But we're not talking about 100% or 200%. We're talking about 3,000% increase in the capacity of a modern society to produce goods and services. 3,000. A factor multiplied of 30. And some, some places it's a factor of 20. If you allow for the quality of goods, the improve, improvements in the quality of goods, it's even more. The great Robert Fogel, the economic historian at the University of Chicago, <coughs> in 1993 won the Nobel Prize. And Fogel, who was a, who was a friend of mine, used to say that when he was a young boy in New York in the 1920s, his mother would send him to the grocery store, the market, I guess, to the grocery store, to buy spinach, spinachi. And then Bob said, I would come home and spend half an hour cleaning the spinach because spinach grows in sandy soil. That's its best way of growing it, in sand. Not sand, not in the middle of the Sahara, but sand, soil with lots of sand in it. Spinach is close to the ground. It grows, it's not a tie, it's not a tree. It's just, you know, a plant close to the ground. And spinach in the market in the 1920s was filled with sand. And it took half an hour over the running water that his parents had, um, though they didn't, their parents didn't have it back in Russia where they came from, but they had running water and little Bobby would clean the sand. And now you go to the grocery store and you buy spinach in a <laughs> bag and you open it up and you eat it, or you, or you make uh, excellent Italian food with it. You see, that's a quality improvement. And that's, been, that's true of a great many foods, that they've gotten better. We're, we're accustomed to thinking, oh, the, old, the good old days of my great-grandparents and, 
They really had slow food, as the famous Italian movement, which I approve of, um, says, slow food. Bravo, bravo, bravissimo. But, but it was expensive food. Expensive in labor, expensive to pour to the poor. The share of expenditure of Americans, rich Americans in the late 1800s on food was something like 40 or 50% of their entire income. Now, the amount Italians or Americans spend on food, you know, we spend more in restaurants <laughs> where we're not buying just the food, we're buying the service of making it and a nice environment and so on. Um, and we're paying the rent for expensive locations in the, in the middle of Milan. The food itself is a very small part of a modern American or Italian household's budget. What The food itself, maybe 10%, 5%, it's very low. So there's been this dramatic increase. The only way that's achieved is by a dramatic increase in the productivity of agriculture and the improvement in the quality of the food. The sand in the spinach problem, the germs in the spinach too. So spinach has become cleaner in every way. Now, here, here's, you know, I'm, a, I'm an economic historian, I'm a quantitative person, I like to talk about numbers. Here's, 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 here's an interesting pair of numbers about the United States. In 1800, 80% of Americans were on farms. 80%, four out of five. Four out of five families, workers, and people were on farms. And they made food for themselves and for the other 20% of the population. Okay? Now, the average American farmer, and you know, this is kind of a rough calculation, feeds 300 people. Not so bad. In fact, in a way, farming is the first example of the euthanasia of the producer, the ending of physical productivity and making things. Not that it's ending, but it's cheapening, 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 cheapening. It first happened in agriculture. Started to, well, it's happened everywhere. It happened in cotton textiles, for example. But a society in which once 80% of the people were farmers, now only 2% are farmers. And this, obviously, you've experienced this in Italy, although actually, even in 1900, one third of Americans were on farms. So we, we Americans, like Italians, have farmers relatively close to them in terms of generations. So this is miraculous, miracolo, this great enrichment. And it's changed the way we think about food, the way we get our food, 
Now, there, food has lots of policies around it. I say I started by noting the sometimes the sentimentality, the historical, well, foolishness of the motivations for the policy sometimes. Um, we're not agricultural societies. We're not food-making societies. Some of the bad policies come from extractions by one part of society from agriculture. Some of the bad policies. Classic example is the policy after independence in post-war Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, of taxing farmers to build up the middle class in the towns, in urban areas. And, and, and the taxes were very heavy. We're talking about, there were marketing boards. You'll have, some of you will, will, will know more about this than I do. Marketing boards through which the power of the state, the violence power of the state said, if you're a farmer, you must sell everything to the marketing board. And then the marketing board will sell it to the world market. And that was a gigantic exploitation of farmers in Africa and resulted in very bad agricultural uh, uh, progress in Africa. And indeed, this middle class that they were helping was not the borghese that I admire so much. It was mainly government bureaucrats in the, in the towns. It was not enterprising makers of new products or efficient suppliers of old products. It was mainly the cousins of the, <laughs> of the, the ruler or a certain ethnic groups. So that was an example of exploitation of farmers. And of course, farmers are very easy to exploit because they're in one location. The agricultural, the agricultural revolution, so-called, of ancient times, which happened not just in Iraq, as, we, as I was told when I was a child. No, it's happened in nine different parts of the world. Um, in the last 10,000 years, we humans, for reasons that are somewhat unclear, all over the world started to domesticate plants and animals. It's a deep historical <clears throat> mystery why in New Guinea they domesticated taro root and why in Mexico they domesticated corn. Um, and why in uh, sub-Saharan Africa they domesticated yams, and why in China, North China they domesticated, actually South China, they domesticated rice, and so on. Why this happened all at, roughly at the same time everywhere. In the earliest is about 8,000 BCE, but it continues uh, for another four or five thousand years. Okay. The problem is that farmers can't move. And so 
stationary bandits, as the phrase goes, were able to tax them. These are stationary bandits we call the aristocracy or the landlords. Anyway, the owners of land, this is something that Jean-Jacques Rousseau got right, among a lot of things he got wrong, is that land ownership can come from violence and it's maintained by violence and so the farmers didn't get any benefit from the industrial, I mean from the agricultural revolution. But what's extraordinary about the last two centuries is that they did get, ordinary people got tremendous benefits in food security, food amounts, food quality from the great enrichment. So there's that one possibility of the government exploiting the farmers. But of course, farmers vote. And so there's the other possibility that the farmers vote so that the, they get to use the government, the monopoly of violence that the government has to <coughs> impose on the rest of the society. So in this case that I mentioned of Sub-Saharan Africa and the marketing boards, the rest of the society was exploiting the farmers. Well, there are lots of other cases of the farmers exploiting the rest of the society. Notice in both cases, it works through the government it works through the monopoly of violence. For instance, let me give some examples. Agricultural protection in the EU. We have the same in the United States. In my opinion, it's, it's scandalous. Um, French farmers with their tractors on the Champs-Élysées every once in a while are able to extract tremendous advantages from the rest of the society. Um, it turns out that if Europe abandoned the EU agricultural policy of subsidizing things and protecting this and protecting that, it would have some of the same effect in the United States if we stopped quotas for sugar, um, subsidies for water in California, in California, which is now going through a drought, farmers pay for the same water one-sixth of what households pay or industries pay. Farmers pay one-sixth. <laughs> so the prices are gigantically tilted in favor of the farm sector in California, in the state of California. If those were abandoned, who would immediately be better off? Well, one group that would be better off is African growers of fruits and vegetables and fiber. Similarly, on the other side of the Atlantic, um, Central American, Caribbean, South American growers of fruit, fiber, and vegetables. And here's an interesting economic calculation. It turns out that the gain to the farmers in these poor, very poor areas of the world would be each year <laughs> 10 times all the foreign aid to those countries. 
10 times. You want to stop these very courageous people who come from sub-Saharan Africa, sub Africa to sell fake, um, uh, fancy um, purses on the streets of Venezia. Vous comprenez? You want to stop that? You want to stop the flood of sub-Saharan African immigrants? I don't think it's a flood at all, but there you are, a flood. Drop the common agricultural policy, and they'll stay home because they'll be able to grow your food. So there is a case of the one side and the, the other. Now let me end with um, another group. There's the, there's, there's one, there's the urban dwellers exploiting the farmers, or the aristocrats exploiting the farmers. And then the farmers, again through the government, exploiting the rest of the society, or harming sub-Saharan Africans. But there's a third group involved here, and it's, this is very much the concern in, uh, in Expo here. And that's the intellectuals, the theorists, the journalists, the advocates, the activists. And I really worry about them. Some of them are here. I don't want to insult you. But I want you to worry about some of your, um, your policies. Let's take, now it's controversial, I know, there's something to be said perhaps on the other side, but let's take the genetic modification of bananas. There is a, there are agronomists in California actually who have developed a variety of bananas, tasty I guess, I don't know, I haven't eaten them, that have very high amounts of vitamin A in them. Vitamin A is frequently deficient in the tropics, in the food that people eat around the equator. One thing they do eat is bananas. They're, they're, they're an inexpensive crop to grow, and some, I, you know, I've had, uh, if, if you go far enough south in the United States, you can. You can see people with banana trees in their backyard. Okay, if you modify this crop, and people say genetic modification, no, no, anything but genetic modification, as though we haven't been modifying we humans, plants and animals, since, since 8,000 BCE. That's the first agricultural revolution is genetic modification of, say, Indian corn, which in the wild starts out that long, and by the time of Columbus ends up that long, and now you've seen ears of corn that are that long. All right. If this banana variety substantially replaces the existing banana varieties, the figures, let me give you the figures, um, there will be each year 700,000, 700,000 fewer people will die 
of various diseases caused by not having enough vitamin A. In particular, no, this, this, this is 700,000 children will not die. They will die if the intellectuals fearful of genetic modification of crops get their way. They write articles in La Republica and they, they say, no, it's bad, I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. Dangerous Dr. Strangelove, weird stuff. And 300,000 annual cases of blindness would be eliminated. Vitamin A is very important for eye health, as you may know. So look, we've got to, you know, you can expect me to say, as the, as the uh, neoliberal economist, you expect me, you, you sort of know what I'm gonna say. I'm going to say that free trade, free modification of genes, um, what's it called? I forget the English technical term. When you zap the food with radiation, and that kills all the, all the, uh, all the bugs, all the bacteria. I forget what, does anyone know the English term? What's it called? Parasites. Yeah, yeah, those are parasites, but how about this radiation? What's it called when you do that with food? Well, what? Irradiation. Irradiation is an extremely inexpensive way, extremely effective to clean food. And yet people will oppose it. They'll oppose it, and maybe they've got some good arguments. I'd like to hear them. But I don't want them to oppose it just because they don't like radiation. This is pazzo. I mean, what sunlight is radiation? I mean, radiation is, we're bathed in radiation. You, we've got gamma rays zooming through us all the time. Let's not be irrational about it. Let's be sensible and save people from bad food that makes them sick. Um, so I, I want free trade in food, of course. I want, um, I want, what else do I want? I want, um, I don't want self-sufficiency in food. The Indian term was swad, swadeshi and was advocated, was recommended by Mahatma Gandhi and, and, and Nehru. We'll have traditional ways of making food in India and we'll have self-sufficiency. This was a terrible idea. Um, uh, it, 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 it kept India poor. There were many of these, this third group, these intellectuals, I call them the clerisy, who opposed the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution turned India from a food importer to a food exporter. Same with uh, lots of other countries. The Green Revolution, which many intellectuals, some, most on the left, some on the right, said, no, no, we mustn't have that. Indeed, there was a food problem. You, the older people here who are um, sophisticated in these matters will know. There was a worldwide food problem in the 1970s 
which inspired um, um, uh, books like um, uh, the, the Population Bomb by, um, what's his name? Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich. Um, the Population Bomb, by now we'd all be dead, or there'd be riots in the street and so on, but it didn't happen. Because in fact, allowing, or <laughs> not successfully stopping market-tested, betterment has resulted in enormous increases in world production of food. We're not in a Malthusian era. It's no longer the case that, that another person on the planet is bad for the rest of us. That's not true anymore. Now, another Indian who may grow up to be that person you get on the phone when you call in and you say, I, my computer's broken, can you fix it? And he says, hello, my name is George. His name isn't George, but he says, hello, my name is George, because he's been told that's the script, and then he helps you fix your computer. I've had lots of conversations with George in Bangalore. Um, that, an extra person is no longer a cause of food insecurity in the rest of the population. On the contrary, here I'll end. An extra person could be the next Einstein, the next Newton. The next, actually, there's an interesting mixed case here. Haber, the great German chemist, is responsible for the invention of artificial fertilizers, the Haber-Bosch process. And artificial fertilizers have been gigantically important in increasing the amount of food in the world. But Haber, <laughs> alas, was also responsible for German poison gas in the First World War. So on the one hand, on the other. But more people are good for us now, not bad. So thank you very much. That's my uh, plea for freedom, liberty, and liberty and dignity in the sphere of food. Thank you. Scala, Alberto took me to the opening night of the new production, and we heard, in the matter of clapping, the we heard some woman complaining about the clap. I think it was for the for the tenor. for the tenor who they, she didn't like. She shouted out, "Oh, you're all a bunch of clackers! Who are people who are paid to clap?" <laughs> I hope there are no clackers here. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to make that a subject of the market. Before celebrating freedom and and uh, relative food security with a cocktail after, <laughs> yeah, after hey, the talk about food security. I think I think Dieter will be amused in entertaining some questions. <laughs>
either in English or in Italian with impromptu translation. If Good. You need. So, andiamo. Settembre è tempo di migrare. Ashanistana. Let's, let's, hey, I, I will ask the first one. <laughs> You'll break the ice. I'll break the ice. I mean, dignity is, is difficult to measure. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, as well. It's, 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 a, it's also a difficult concept to, um, to grasp, I think, for, for people. When will you place, when do you place, you know, the, the turning point? I mean, when uh, bourgeois professions and, uh, I mean, including, in a way, um, commerce and, and food. Of course, very uh, much so. When, when did they begin to get dignified? Well, the, let's take the case of the American farmer. <laughs> American farmers have big farms, mostly. I used to live for 19 years in Iowa, and I would square dance with these farmers. So I get, that's how I got to know a lot of farmers, is by square dancing, you know, swing your partner. And they have very big, 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 they have 500 hectare farms, even larger. And they have enormous combine harvesters, air-conditioned cabs, and they've all been to university. They're, they've got master's degrees in agronomy. I kind of imagine them in their air conditioning cabs with earphones on hearing Mozart. Maybe not. Maybe it's country music. But that kind of enterprise, that kind of, um, that kind of person is honored in the United States and has been really since the early days of the Republic. The farmer was honorable in America. That's actually, that's what gave rise to the myth of the family farm. These are, I guess they're family, some of them are family farms, some of them are corporate. But anyway, they're very big and they're not this little teeny family farm. In Europe generally, it started in Northwestern Europe, in Holland, in the, in, especially in the 1600s. Holland amazed the world. These merchants at the mouth of the Rhine were able to fend off the hegemonic power of the day, Spain, for 80 years. And then it spread, and it spread very interestingly to England in the late 1600s, 1690s. And then it, Scotland. And, and then, and then, and finally, Milan. Although, although uh, the problem here with my argument is that merchants in Milan have been honored for a long time. I, as you say, it's hard to, hard to measure, but, but I, I really do think that there's a big change in how people talk about invention, Merchants, manufacturers, business. 
Alas, the intellectuals are still nervous. I'm a big fan of, of Donna Leon. You know who she is? She writes mystery novels about Venice. She refuses, in English, she's, she's an American, she's not an Italian. She refuses to have her novels translated into English. Into Italian. I mean, sorry, into, into Italian. I'm, I'm so fluent in Italian, I can't do <laughs> into, in, in, into Italian. And in her mystery novels, business people, large business people especially, are always the villains. And the hero is Commissario Brunetti, agent of the state. So even my beloved Don Leon has it wrong. Sorry, that was a long answer. I'll be I'll be more brief in the future. That's, that's a very interesting one. I mean, as you may remember, that's a piece that's a piece in Ludwig from Mises, the anti-capitalist mentality, yeah, yeah. in which he points out that the mystery novel is really a device of anti-capitalism. Yeah, in some ways it is. Is that behind the mystery novel you really have this idea that the real world is a con is a conspiracy. Conspiracy, conspiracy against consumers, against as, people. As my beloved. Leopardi said, Dico che il mondo è una lega di birbanti. I only have a few of these Italian things and I'm running out of them. Yes, <laughs> but they're very well, well cooked. Prego. It's a deep, it's a deep, it's a deep question you ask. Why are the intellectuals so opposed? Some of us, uh, we, 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 he and I, we're in favor of it all and we think it's great. But you're right, most, there's, there's tremendous suspicion of the bourgeoisie. Um, uh, um, F F F Flaubert middle of the 19th century, writes to Georges Sand, and he says, I won't attempt French, my French is worse than my Italian. Uh, he says, hatred of the bourgeoisie is the beginning of virtue. Well, I, it's, it's, I, you know, I have some ideas, but they're all kind of, I don't know, really know the answer. Um, there's the matter of, of fathers and sons. A remarkable percentage of the anti-bourgeois intellectuals in France and Britain and Germany, Germany not as much, but certainly in France, were the sons of manufacturers and merchants. So, you know, my dad, how am I gonna distinguish myself? Maybe that's it, but I'd like to hear your ideas so I can steal them. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very great problem. Because still in the editorial rooms in, in Milan and New York and London, these fantastically successful places where the great enrichment happened, obviously because of this market uh, 
behavior and this wonderful innovation, you get these people sitting around talking about market failures. And I can tell you as an economist and a historian, this is approximately true, but I'll, I'll, I'll state it in a kind of extreme form. None of the market failures have ever been measured. So someone, some, some theorist comes up, ah, oh, asymmetric information, monopoly, externalities, they must be important, therefore capitalism has failed, therefore let's turn to governo ladro. Um, it's a, it, that actually is a, is a scientific scandal in uh, economics. Your guess on this main question is, is, is as good as mine. Not very much. The chairman? Si è abituato a fare le domande. No, no, You can ask an Italian anyone, I don't mind. I love listening to Italian. <laughs> and you get a translation. I get a translation which is even better. Averso, you know. There you go. What would you say to Let's get that so the, so the audience can. What would you say to all the farmers that currently in the US and Europe live on some cities uh, and are afraid of losing them? They, Which are the arguments we can use? Well, the, the basic argument is that if you live on subsidies, let's take crofters. Let's, let's allow this to go by. Crofters, which is the name for um, very small farmers in the highlands of Scotland, crofters. There is a crofting policy to, in order to keep the land occupied. And I would say to them, it's very nice that you, if, if you want to do this on your own money, go ahead, feel free. Go, go be a crofter. But why should other members of the society be impoverished, or not impoverished exactly, but not grow as fast because you have this special subsidy? I mean, it's, it's unfair is one thing I'd say. And the other thing I'd say is that in the long run, maybe even you, the crofter, but certainly your children and your grandchildren will be better off if, if the European and the American economies are not being held back by these attempts at what is normally called protection. Look, if we all, if we, if we protected every job, then we could stay at $3 a day and all have a job. Then we'd be poor and ignorant and sick. Or we can embrace innovation. So, you know, subsidies have to come from somewhere. They're not a free lunch. My, my title is about a free lunch, food free lunch, and that's what this has been, so to speak. Free lunch in the sense that it doesn't have, um, uh, well, the, it doesn't got opportunity costs. But 
giving this, you know, Argentina is an extreme case where everybody is subsidized. Now think it through. <laughs> That's not going to work. You can't subsidize everyone. Let's get the uh, thing so the outsiders can hear. Um, I think historically the support for agriculture has had a lot to do with the strategic reasons. Yeah. Uh, security, right. war, etc. That's right. And uh, well, luckily the problem is not so dramatic, but it might still be there. Yeah, I understand. I understand, and, it, and, and that's what you'll hear in Japan, you'll hear it in various other places. I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now a very good book by David Edgerton called, what's it called? Um, Britain's, uh, Britain's, I have it in my purse. War Machine. Yeah, Britain's War Machine, and it's about um, how the Second World War was fought on a material basis, right? The economy the Second World War in Britain. <laughs> and he points out, speaking of this food security matter, that Britain, during the war, had more food per capita than it had before the war. This island nation, which depended on imports of food, and had depended on imports of food since the 1840s, nonetheless was able during the war, there was an enormous increase in shipping during the war. So they were still importing yeah. agriculture, not producing that. That's right, not producing agriculture, specializing in what the English specialize in, cricket or something, <laughs> and, and, and uh, importing from all over the world right through the Second World War. We have this impression that Britain was alone and that the and that, that the U-boats were completely effective and that uh, the brave British in the Blitz and all this. And he says, it's it's baloney. So I I I think the foods the, the international food security thing is uh, look, one thing that did improve food security was falling transport costs. Right? Of which um, Edgerton's case is an example. Um, in France, if in the uh, in the in the eighteenth century or, and before, internal transportation was so bad that you could have people starving here and have lots of food here. And even within a single country, that was improved by improved transportation. Holland had good food security, both from invasion and, and, and uh, food security against starvation, very early because of its excellent water transportation. So yes, that's the mythology. But I think you agree that it's sometimes a rather, um, it's maybe self-interested or sentimental. What? Or both. Or both. All of the above. Yeah, over here we can get the, get the microphone over there. For first, first, well, for, okay, then. Yeah. 
Kippur. Kippur, Yom Kippur, and the holiest the, of holy. the Jewish people are fasting since last, uh, sunset last night Indeed. and won't be eating or drinking until the three stars, the first three stars appear in the sky, yep. which will be a little difficult to find out tonight. <laughs> but anyway, they probably know it by heart. So uh, let, let's not talk about Jews, let's talk about Catholics. Uh, the Pope has, I think, said recently that Oji had a bad form. Yeah, so he says. I don't think for the sound, but for the body. Yeah, yeah. And whom does the Pope protect? What are the classes of categories of people, uh, countries that uh, a Pope they think they protect. They don't think they are Catholics. Not because they are Catholics. Yes, I would like you to say something about that. Sant I would like to know your um, opinion on that. Uh, Papa Fran Francesco, very surprisingly, Francesco Uno. Mm -hmm. I don't get it, but that's a separate matter. Has a zero-sum view of the world, of the economy. And he thinks that the only solution to poverty is for you, me, to give to the poor. I do, actually. I give 10% of my income to my church. I'm an Anglican. But, you know, that, that's, I don't believe that 10% of my income is going to solve poverty. And what, what he doesn't get, Francesco doesn't get is this win-win character, this positive-sum character of markets and innovation and abandoning policies that, that subsidize one group at the, at the, at the cost of another. It, he's, he's advised by some economists, um, and I don't, they must be very, um, I, I, I would want to have a debate with them about economics and economic history, because they're feeding him uh, very bad policies. On the other hand, I, I kind of like him, and many of his statements are very nice, but, but uh, not on economics, which, which is a deep problem in Catholic uh, social thought. Thank you. Let's suppose that uh, agricultural uh, subsidies are banned. Yeah. And uh, as you said, uh, the uh, food production moves uh, to countries like uh, Africa. Yeah, good for us. What kind of uh, future do you foresee for uh, countryside in uh, developing development? Well, now, here's my answer to that. And I, I don't want to be sound like I'm, you know, being arrogant or something. But it is a somewhat arrogant answer. It is this. If we want the countryside to look nice, we can hire the farmers as gardeners. Who's going to pay for it? You, me. That's fine. If we want, if we want. If we want, I mean, I love the Italian countryside. I love the English countryside. They're French countryside I don't like as much, but the, the, those two I like very much, and they make me think of, uh, 
uh, my youth in England and Italy, and I, it makes me very happy to see it all. If I want to keep it, if, if that's the purpose of the common agricultural policy, then as an economist, I must say, wait a minute, time out. There is a, le there is a much less expensive way of achieving this, namely hire some of the farmers as gardeners. And, but not give them money so that they can have a nice life in some small German town at the expense of extremely poor people in sub-Saharan Africa. It sounds not very cosmopolitan to me. It sounds like an ethical failure. And, and I think protection is like that. It's all about, I'm going to protect my people. Now, by the way, it doesn't actually protect them. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cultural skepticism. And maybe one of the reasons is just rent seeking. Uh, well, yeah, I, you, by the way, that, that's a common argument. They say, well, they, they'll make a lot of money by being socialists or being in favor of agricultural subsidies. I don't know. I think people are more sincere than that. I hope so. <laughs> and uh, regarding rent seeking of intellectuals, what about the responsibility of the food and agricultural organization? Well, but that's the trouble. It's like the Department of Agriculture in the United States. The FAO is devoted to agricultural policy. And policy means you use the power, the, uh, the, the monopoly of the violence of government to make people do something that they, that they wouldn't otherwise do. <laughs> There's a joke about the Department of Agriculture in the United States that goes like this. But by the way, as I said, the number of farmers has been falling and falling and falling and falling. The Department of Agriculture is still very large. <laughs> so the joke goes like this. A man is visiting the main office of the Department of Agriculture in Washington and he's, he's ushered by his host into this enormous room with hundreds of desks, each of them with a Department of Agriculture official at it. And he looks around and he sees this one man at his desk weeping inconsolably. He's crying, he's, oh, deal, deal. he's, he's in terrible shape. And the man, the, the visitor, asks the host, what's wrong with this poor man? And the host says, his farmer died. <laughs> it's, there, there are lots of situations like this in the world. The French, I, I think it's fair to say, that the French bureaucracy that protects the French film industry and subsidizes it is larger than the number of people in the French film industry. <laughs> it's 20,000 people. 
in that bureaucracy. Is that a joke or a real news? That's, <laughs> that's you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the joke, the Carabinieri joke, right? <laughs> Two of the stories are jokes, all the rest are true. <laughs> <laughs> He told me this the other day. <laughs> I don't mean to, but look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guest in your country. I shouldn't make <laughs> jokes about your institutions. <laughs> well, come on, speak, speak. If there are no other questions, I think we can move to our cocktail. Okay. And I'm sure that Dieter will be very be happy glad. to entertain to to questions, but also to um, sign books. Of course. Perhaps at no charge. Um, <laughs> depends on supply and demand there. <laughs> but I just wanted to um, spend a, a very quick word in saying that we have this cocktail over there. We will have actually an example of innovation and trade in food. We have a sponsor for this series of events, um, who's Mr. Brazzale with his uh, Gran Moravia. It's been a hilarious fundraising experience to me to try to get funds for this kind of events because it's the only time in my life I was sitting down in front of entrepreneurs and they, instead of telling me you're crazy, which is what happens most of the time, uh, were telling me you're absolutely right. <laughs> we share these ideas. This is great, phenomenal. We need to oppose uh, these stereotypes and food, but our company will never commit. <laughs> uh, so instead, we, we're very um, happy to have a friend that took a different view. So good. Uh, we will have a, uh, also a, a nice cocktail. Thanks to. Uh, thanks to him. But before that, he's joined me in really thanking David McCloskey for this wonderful.